Andrew Womack Ministries presents this message titled, The Book of Job. We pray that the Word of God will come alive in your heart as you listen. Praise the Lord. Today we're dealing with the subject of Job, out of the Book of Job in the Old Testament. And we're going to be dealing with why did Job experience all of these trials that he did. Now, I want to say right off the bat that this is not going to be a complete teaching on the Book of Job. There's a lot of things that could be said. The book of Job really, in many ways, is unique. There's some things mentioned in here that uh, you could spend a tremendous amount of time dealing with that. For instance, in the very first chapter of the book of Job, it talks about the sons of God coming and appearing before God and Satan coming also among them. Now, that could be researched and a lot could be said about that. I've got to be honest, I don't totally understand that. But that is not our purpose in studying Job. We aren't trying to make a complete explanation of the book of Job, but rather we are going to focus on where did his troubles come from? Why did they come? What was the design of them? Who was the author of them? And we're going to be dealing with these things, and I believe that it'll be very beneficial. I also would like to say that I'm aware that I don't have total revelation on the book of Job. I know that there's a lot of things I'm still praying about, but I liken it to a puzzle. And I help my children put together puzzles every once in a while. And, you know, you can sometimes find a piece that will fit with another piece, but you don't know how they fit into the puzzle. You don't know. You just got little pieces here and there. And you may not even be able to tell what the puzzle looks like by looking at those pieces. But as you continue to work with it, you begin to start getting an outline of the thing. And then they begin to start fitting together. And even though you may still have a few pieces missing, you really do have a good understanding of exactly what that puzzle is going to look like. You may not have it complete yet, but you reach a point where you know that you have it basically put together and it's just a matter of filling in these missing pieces. Well, I feel that way about the book of Job. I've been studying this now for many, many years and I've been praying over it and God's given me little truths here and there and uh, they are finally fitting together. They aren't all together yet, but they're close enough. I've seen enough things come together that I am totally convinced that we've got the basic outline, the basic understanding of it and uh, even though I don't have everything I'm sure that I need to know or will know about the book of Job. I know that what I do have, what God has revealed, has been a blessing to me, and I believe that as I share it, it'll be a blessing to you. So I offer it to you that way, not as the complete revelation, but the revelation that I have that at this moment is ministering to me. It has answered many questions, and I offer it to you that way so that it'll be a blessing to you. Now, as we start dealing with the book of Job, there's a little bit of background material that I do believe that we need to give because later on we'll be drawing on some of these things to establish some truths that I'll be using to teach through the book of Job. So I'd like for you to look in Genesis chapter 46, and this is a reference to a man named Job who was a grandson of Jacob, the patriarch Jacob, who later had his name changed to Israel. Now, this is a possible uh, reference to the same Job that we see over here in the book of Job uh, later on in sequence in the Old Testament. In Job, excuse me, in Genesis chapter 46 and verse 13, the scripture says, And the sons of Issachar, Tola, and Puva, and Job, and Simron. Now, Issachar was one of the twelve patriarchs, or the twelve children that came out of Jacob, and uh, he was a brother to Joseph. 
And so Job here is listed as being a son of Issachar, the grandson of Jacob. Now this does not say that this Job is the same Job that we see the story recounted of in the book of Job. And I personally believe that this is not scriptural precedent. It's not enough mention to say that this Job is the same Job that we see written of in the book of Job. Uh, there are many men that had the same names, and that does not make them the same person. Just the same as today, we see there's many people with the name Andrew. And that doesn't mean that they're me just because they may have the same name that I have. Well, of course, the same thing is true in the Bible. And so I, I simply bring this up to say that this is a possibility. There's no way to say that this wasn't the same Job, but there's no way to base a doctrine on it. If this was the same man, and if you begin to take the ages of people and take an average age of how old a person was when he began to start having his family and then uh, apply the same thing to his children, then that would put Job, the actual time that this book of Job took place, before the time of Moses. But as we read over in Job chapter 42, after God delivered Job out of this trial and affliction that he went through, then God blessed him, multiplied back to him twice as much of everything that he had lost, and also gave him 140 years. So he lived 140 years after this instance. And that would put him all the way up to where Job was alive during the days of Moses. So this would date the story, the experience that Job had before the days of Moses, which will be important later on. Now, again, I say that you cannot necessarily say that this is the same man. Matter of fact, some of the questions that I have are that if Job was the son of Jacob, and the, uh, the grandson of Jacob and the son of Issachar, why didn't he go down into Egypt with them? Because in uh, Genesis, we see that when Joseph finally revealed himself unto Jacob, that Jacob and the, all of Joseph's brethren and their entire households came down with them into Egypt. Why didn't Job go with them? Because we read over in Job, the first chapter, that Job was the greatest of all of the men of the east. And also in verse 1, that he lived in the land of us, which this would be east of the land of Canaan. And so it definitely would not be in Egypt. Why wasn't he there? Now, again, this wouldn't preclude that this was not the same man, because it's possible that one of the children of Issachar moved and did something else. But why? There is no reason. That, that is a big enough question that without any more reference, you cannot authoritatively say that this is the same man. But whether that's true or not, the point that I do want to make is I believe that we can see through the content of the book of Job that the book of Job is probably the oldest book in the Bible. Now, the subject matter that's covered, of course, does not predate the book of Genesis because the book of Genesis starts with the creation of Adam and it goes on through. But Moses is the one that wrote Genesis, and the book of Job was written before the days of Moses. So as far as the exact chronological order of books being written, Job would be the oldest book. And I believe that for a number of things. One thing, if it was the same man listed in Genesis 46:13, then that would definitely show that Job was before the days of Moses. Even if that isn't so, there is no specific reference in the book of Job to any of the Old Testament laws, ordinances, or any of these type of things. There is no reference to the Mosaic Law. And that would be very unusual for a book in the Bible that 
every other book in the Old Testament does make reference to that in some way or another. This would just be highly unusual. And also the revelation that these men had of God is exactly the same type of revelation as you can find in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had a moral code. They had some revelation of God, and yet they didn't have the revelation that we see that came after the days of Moses. There was no reference to the days of Moses, which, as these men were arguing back and forth with Job, trying to explain the justness of God, they certainly would have referred to some of those miraculous acts showing that God did favor his people. And on and on you could go with the arguments. But... If you just study it and look at it, I believe that uh, anybody would say that the book of Job probably predates any of the other books of the Bible. And so this becomes very important. Later on, we'll bring that out as to exactly how important, why that is important. But you need to remember that, that the book of Job is the oldest book in the Bible. Also, I might add that I've looked this up, and uh, all scholars that I've ever read, and I've looked up a number of them, all agree that Job predates all of the other books of the Bible. Also, another thing that I believe is really important to recognize, as you start studying the book of Job, you need to recognize that there are a lot of the discourses between Job and his three friends that although they can be benefited from, they cannot be counted upon or relied upon for a proper understanding of the book. Now, this is a little bit of a peculiar situation because when you take Scripture, usually when people read something in the Bible, they tend to just believe whatever they read. But when you have a narrative and people are voicing their opinions, God, just because he recorded what these people said in the Bible, does not mean that he approved of what they said. Matter of fact, in Job chapter 42 and verse 7, God, after he had already spoken unto Job, he said this, it says, And it was so that after the Lord had spoken these words unto Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against thee and against thy two friends, for ye have not spoken of me the thing that is right, as my servant Job hath. So God rebuked those three friends of Job and said that they had not spoken what was right. And so that means that although what Job's three friends spoke can be read and profited from and benefited from, you cannot take that as being God's mind on the subject. I've heard many people take quotes from the book of Job, and they'll quote Job or his three friends, and they'll take these scriptures, and they'll try and say that this is the way that God is. Well, now, there's some things that they say in here that may be true, but I, I believe that is very shaky theology. You cannot take what a man said, who God later rebuked them and told them that they were wrong for what they said. You can't take something like that and base a doctrine on God on it. And so it's really not proper to quote Job and his three friends and use them as references referring to how God is to give you understanding of his nature or understanding of this book when God has disqualified them through saying that they did not speak the thing that was right. Now, I'm not saying that we can't benefit from those things. We're going to be reading some of these quotations as we go through the book of Job. But we need to understand that this is man's reasoning trying to understand what happened to Job. And you'll find out that some of the man's reasoning is exactly the same way that people are looking at it today. And God turns around and says, that's wrong. So we can benefit from it, but we can't use it as being inspired, not the words of those men. Rather, they were speaking out of their own natural ability. This shows us natural wisdom, carnal wisdom, or we could say the wisdom of the world trying to understand these spiritual things. And they simply missed it. 
And so we can benefit from them, but we cannot base our interpretation of the book of Job upon those things. And so that means that there were nine chapters in the book of Job that his three friends spoke. And God directly, in Job 42, 7, said that you they did not speak the things that were right. So we need to take those nine chapters and put them in a category. Even though we can benefit from them, we do not base our interpretation of the book of Job upon them. Now, Job had three friends. Their name was Eliphaz, Bildad, and Sophar. I may not pronounce them exactly right, but that's close. Eliphaz and Bildad both spoke to Job three times, and Sophar spoke two times. And their speeches covered a total of nine chapters. If you want to write this down for your own benefit in studying, Eliphaz spoke in chapter 4 and 5, also chapter 15, and also chapter 22. Bildad spoke in chapter 8, in chapter 18, and also in chapter 25. And Zophar spoke in chapter 11 and chapter 20. And that's a total of nine chapters. So we can take those chapters and we cannot draw our interpretation of what the book of Job is saying through their scenes because they were reproved. Also, Job was reproved. And we find this when God appeared. And of course, Elihu also reproved him. And we'll get to that in just a minute. But in Job chapter 38, this is where God himself spoke to Job out of the whirlwind. There was a visible manifestation of the presence of God and an audible voice. And in Job 38 verse 2, God is speaking and he said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? And if you were to read through what God said in chapter 38 through chapter 41, you'd find that God reproved Job for his misunderstanding of God and the ways of God. And also Job himself in chapter 40 verses 3 through five, Job said that he was vile, that he had put it, he was going to put his hand on his mouth, that he had spoken, but now he realized he was wrong. And also in chapter 42, after God got through speaking unto him, Job said, uh, verse two, I know that thou canst do everything and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not. Things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. And he goes on. But Job admitted himself that he had spoken things that were too high for him. He didn't really understand what he was saying. So God said that he had spoken... Uh, he had darkened counsel by words without knowledge. Job himself admitted that he did not speak with proper understanding. So what this means is that Job's statements cannot be relied upon either to interpret the book. Now, Job did make a couple of statements in the first two chapters that were spoken by the narrator or the author of the book of Job, and those things were followed by statements that say, in all of this, Job sinned not nor charged God foolishly. Now, you can take those things and use them to interpret the word because the author of the book comes along and says that Job said what was right there. But in Job's general discourses with his three friends, God reproved him and Job himself admitted that he had not been speaking with wisdom. And so you cannot take what Job says as being authoritative, as being true, an accurate understanding of the situation. You can benefit from it, like for instance where he makes his tremendous statement about, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the last day he shall stand upon the earth. That's a tremendous statement. Now, that is for sure that that is uttered by God. It's inspired by God. It's a tremendous revelation 
of God and his mercy and the redemption that was coming upon the earth. There's no way he could have spoken that by himself. That had to be inspired of God. Now, you can benefit from things like that, but you simply cannot base your interpretation of the book of Job on what Job said because he was reproved by God and himself admitted his mistakes. So Job spoke nine different times, starting in chapter 3, and he spoke all the way up through chapter 31. And he spoke a total of nine times back and forth to his friends and covered 20 chapters. And so if you add those 20 chapters that Job spoke along with the nine chapters that his three friends spoke, that means 29 chapters out of 42 chapters are there for our benefit. We can profit from them, but we cannot base our interpretation of what the book of Job is teaching through that. Now, I believe that that is really important because, again, I've heard people take statements from these people and try and prove things in the book of Job, and that simply is not uh, correct. God himself uh, said that these people were wrong in their understanding of the situation. So what can we use to interpret the book of Job? Well, the first two chapters and also the last chapter, that means chapters 1, 2, and chapter 42, are written by the author of the book of Job. And we know that whoever wrote the book of Job, that it was inspired of God. Even as the New Testament reveals that in old times, men of old uh, spake as they were moved upon by the Holy Ghost. And, of course, we know that all Scripture is, is God-breathed, or it's inspired by God. And so whoever wrote the book of Job was definitely inspired of God. And so we can take the first two chapters and the last chapter by the author, and we can look at those authoritatively and use those to draw our conclusions. And that's where we'll get a tremendous amount of our information. Also, God himself appeared in a whirlwind and spoke to Job in an audible voice. And that begins in chapter 38 through chapter 41. So that's four chapters that God himself was speaking to Job, and we can take those four chapters and use those things to interpret the book of Job. Now there's some things that we'll get out of that. Uh, God did definitely reprove Job for uh, his arrogancy and for the fact that Job had uttered words without knowledge. And so we can benefit from that. But as far as God actually explaining and interpreting to Job why it was that all of this happened, which was really the, cr the cry of Job's heart, God did not explain that. All he did was sit there and say, Job, who are you to criticize me? And he rebuked him for that. So we still get understanding from what God said, but God did not give an explanation to Job. He did not excuse his actions or what had happened to Job. And so uh, there's still a lot of questions left. That still leaves six chapters in the book of Job that we haven't categorized yet. And those six chapters are chapters 32 through 37. And those six chapters were spoken by a man named Elihu. Now, Elihu was not one of Job's three friends. It's evident by the 32nd chapter of the book of Job that he was present throughout this whole time that Job's three friends were there and during the time that they were talking back and forth and uttering all of these things. Elihu was there, but Elihu had not said anything. He had just been listening. He was not listed as one of Job's three friends. Actually, the Bible doesn't even reveal him as being one of those who came. It doesn't show that he came in chapter 3 where it starts that. And God, when he came on the scene, he didn't even address Elihu. Elihu hadn't spoken to any other way except by the author of the book. He reveals him in chapters 32 through 37. It's kind of mysterious. And also, if you'll look in chapter 32 of Job, 
I believe that this is really one of the keys to the book right here. And this is something that the Lord has um, really borne witness in my heart that this is one of the important things that we need to establish as we begin. In chapter 32, the author of the book comes back in in verse 1, and he said, So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. The whole book of Job is written from a narrator's standpoint, similar to a news article that we would read in the paper, where you have a reporter giving you all of this information, a third party uh, objectively looking at this. And so the author or the narrator comes back in in chapter 32, and he begins to start revealing to us about Elihu, the uh, son of Barakel, the Buzzite, of the kindred of Ram. Against Job was his wrath kindled because he justified himself rather than God. Also against his three friends was his wrath kindled because they had found no answer and yet had condemned Job. Now Elihu had waited till Job had spoken because they were elder than he. When Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, then his wrath was kindled. And Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzzite, answered and said, now, if we were writing this in modern-day English, the way that we've been taught in school to do this, the narrator in verse 6 right here, after it says that Elihu, the son of Barakel the Buzzite, answered and said, there would be a comma, then quotation marks, and Elihu would start his speech, I am young and ye are very old, etc. And that's the way that it would be done. That's the way that the entire book of Job has been written. For instance, in chapter 26, the narrator comes in the very first verse and says, But Job answered and said. Then there would be a comma, quotation marks, and Job would begin to speak. Chapter 27 says, Moreover, Job continued his parable and said. There would be a comma, quotation marks, and Job would continue speaking. That's the way the entire book of Job has been, and it's still consistent. In chapter 32, as Elihu begins to speak in verse 6, he speaks all the way through chapter 37. But there is a break in his narrative here in the 32nd chapter. He ends up his first phrase or his first uh, segment of his speech to Job and these three friends in verse 14, Job 32:14, And he says this, Now he had not directed his words against me, neither will I answer him with your speeches. Now in verse 15, the narrator or the author of the book comes back in and he says this, They were amazed. They answered no more. They left off speaking. When I had waited, for they spake not but stood still and answered no more, I said. And then, again, going back to the rules of English, the narrator would, there would be a comma, quotation marks, and Elihu would begin to speak. I will answer also my part. I also will show mine opinion. Now, the reason I'm bringing all this out is because this reveals to us that the author of the book of Job is none other than this Elihu that's mentioned right here. Because when Elihu begins his speech, he starts off by saying, or let me say the author, the narrator, in this parenthetical phrase comes in and he says, I said, and then comma, and he starts quoting Elihu. So that shows us that the narrator of the book of Job was none other than Elihu. Every other time he would say, Job said, or he would say, Eliphaz said, or he would say this, but he never spoke this I. The only time that the narrator in the entire book of Job uses this first person to relate to a person is right here in Job 32, verses 16 and also verse 17. Twice in these two verses, back to back, he says, I, and then he starts referring to Elihu. So that shows us that Elihu is the one that wrote this book. And again, I refer back to the scripture that says that in olden times, men of old wrote as they were moved upon by the Holy Ghost. And so Elihu was moved upon by the Holy Ghost. He was the author of this. 
And I believe, therefore, what he said is also authoritative. That means chapter 32 through chapter 37 can be added to our list of chapters that we can take and authoritatively use to draw a conclusion on the book of Job. So summing all of this up, that means that chapters 1, 2, and 42 are authoritative and can be used because they were written by the author. Chapter uh, 38 through chapter 41 are God speaking as reported by the author or the narrator of the story. And of course, what God says is, is authoritative. And since Elihu is the author of the book of Job, that makes chapters 32 through 37 also authoritative. A total of, of 10 cha 13 chapters that we can use to properly interpret the book of Job. Also, another thing that would verify Elihu as this author is that, as you remember, we mentioned in chapter 42 and verse 7, that God rebuked Eliphaz and his three friends, Bildad, or his two friends, Bildad and Sophar. He rebuked those three friends, but Elihu was not mentioned. Now, God came along and rebuked Job directly and talked to Job and uh, really came down pretty hard on him. And then he turned to Job's three friends and rebuked them. So Job was dealt with, his three friends, but Elihu was just left totally untouched, which that would leave you with the impression that God was not displeased with Elihu, that Elihu must have been speaking that which was right. Also, Job, in one of his speeches, cried out and said, Oh, that there was a day's man between us. This is in Job chapter 9, verse 32. And Job said, For he, speaking of, Job was speaking about God, he said, For he is not a man as I am, that I should answer him, and that we should come together in judgment. Neither is there any day's man between us. And that word literally means an umpire or a referee that might lay his hand upon us both. Let him take his rod away from me, and let not his fear terrify me. Then would I speak and not fear him, but it is not so with me. And this was one of Job's complaints was he's saying, Who, you know, God, I can't approach unto God. How can God and I talk together and reason this thing out? He's saying, Oh, that there was some man between us, somebody that was flesh and blood that could understand what I am and yet could speak to me and give me God's wisdom on the matter. Job totally rejected the counsel of his three friends, and rightfully so, because they were not speaking the thing that was right. God himself judged that in chapter 42, verse 7. And so he was crying out for that. And Elihu came on the scene in chapter 33, and he said, Behold, I am according to thy wish in God's stead. I also am formed out of the clay. Behold, my terror shall not make thee afraid, neither shall my hand be heavy upon thee. And so he claimed to be God's answer to Job's prayer over there in chapter 9. And also, in chapter 38, as God appeared and began to speak unto Job out of the whirlwind, there are at least six things that God said in chapter 38 that were exactly what Elihu had said. Now, whether to say that God quoted Elihu, or if you just say that God had used the exact same reasoning and conclusions that Elihu used, either way, it shows that God and Elihu were in agreement. Another verification that Elihu was speaking correctly. He was speaking as the author of this book, inspired of the Holy Ghost, and I believe that those things verify. Let me just real quickly run through there. Uh, the first one would be in verse 2, Job 38, verse 2, uh, where God said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? If you'll look back in chapter 34 and verse 35, 
you'll find that Elihu said this same thing unto Job. He says, Job has spoken without knowledge, and his words were without wisdom. Now, God, see, said that same thing. Also, in verse 9 of chapter 38, God started using the clouds, the thick darkness, uh, as an example of the majesty of God. And did Job understand that? No, he didn't. And that's exactly what Elihu said in chapter 36, verses 27 through 29. Also down in verse 22 of Job 38, God said, Has you, Have you entered into the treasures of the snow, or hast thou seen the treasures of the hail? And Elihu used that exact same example and reasoning with Job in chapter 37 and verse 6. Also in, in verse 26 of Job 38, God was speaking to Job and said, Have you caused it to rain on the earth where no man is, on the wilderness where there is no man to justify the desolate and waste ground and to cause the bud of the tender herb to spring forth. Again, that was Elihu's reasoning in chapter 36, verse 27. In verse 29 of Job 38, God said, Out of whose womb came the ice and the hoarfrost of the heaven? Who hath gendered it? Again, Elihu had used that same wording, the same example over in chapter 37, verses 9 and 10. And then down in verse 34, God said, Canst thou lift up thy voice to the clouds, that the abundance of waters may cover thee? Canst thou send lightnings, that they may go and say unto thee, Here we are? And Elihu had used this same example about lightning and thunder in chapter 37, verses 1 through 5. Now, there's other things. As you, If you went into chapter 39, 40, and 41, I'm sure that you could find many more similarities. But just right here in this one chapter, it shows that God, what God was saying and what Elihu was saying, were in agreement. So all of these things go together, especially that verses 15, 16, and 17 in Job 32 to show that Elihu was the author of the book and that he was inspired of God and that his judgments and the things that he said were correct and can be used to understand the book of Job. And in case anybody isn't really familiar with the book of Job, I'd like to give a very quick summary of exactly what happened in the book of Job so that you'll know what I'm making reference to as I refer back to instances. First of all, in chapters 1 and 2, it shows us in the first part of chapter 1 that Job was a very godly man and that he was seeking God. And as a result, God had blessed him and he became the greatest of all of the men of the East. And this word greatest, uh, of course, could be used in multiple ways. I'm sure it meant in piety and holiness, but also in substance. He had tremendous substance and it lists all of the great substance that he had, all of his camels, his oxen, his asses, and his servants. And he had um, seven sons and three sisters, or three daughters, that uh, as they went about and they feasted, apparently they were living uh, a very indulging life. They were not strict in the sense that Job was. And as they would go about feasting and drinking in their houses, Job would go about and offer sacrifices for them in fear that they had cursed God or done something. And so he did this, and, and the narrator uses this as an example of how pious he was. He was even praying and interceding for his family. In every area, he was seeking God. But there came a day when the sons of God came to appear before God, and Satan himself also came among them. That's in chapter 1, verse 6. And Satan, uh, God began to speak to Satan about Job. And Satan desired to have Job and to uh, have an opportunity against him. And so the Lord allowed that, and Satan went out and smote Job. 
He first Satan, first of all, used the Sabians, that's a group of people, to come upon Job's oxen and asses as they were working, and they came down, slew all of the servants, and took all of his oxes, oxen and asses, and only one of the servants escaped to be able to come to tell Job. And while he was still relating that story to Job, then another servant came saying that he was keeping the sheep and the fire of God fell out of heaven and consumed all of the sheep and all of the servants and that that servant was the only one who escaped and was able to come and tell Job. While that man was still talking, another servant came and said that the Chaldeans had come down and had fought against Job's servants that were keeping the camels and they had slain all of the servants and had taken the camels with them and this servant was the only one who escaped to come and tell Job. And while he was still talking, Another servant came and said that Job's seven sons and three daughters were in one of the were in the elder brother's house uh, holding a feast, and that a great wind came from the wilderness and it collapsed the house and killed all of Job's children. And so we see Job instead of complaining, he fell down on his face, began to worship God, and he said in verse 21. Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And it goes on to say, In all this Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. And then in chapter 2, we see a second scene in heaven where Satan once again appears before God, and God starts bragging on Job, that Job was still serving God, even though these terrible things had happened to him. And Satan begins to say, Well, anybody will serve you as long as it doesn't touch them themselves. said, you know, a man may watch his own children, uh, belongings taken away, but if you would just put forth your hand and touch Job's flesh, then he would deny you. Well, it goes on to show that Satan was able to go and strike Job with boils from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet, and yet Job did not curse God. Matter of fact, Job's wife even tried to get him to curse God, and Job said, you're talking like a foolish woman. He says, do we receive just good at the hands of God and not evil only? And he began to worship and praise God. In all of this, Job was right. He did not sin. He served God. Now that's the opening scene. Then in chapter 3, Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Sophar, they came to mourn with Job and to comfort him concerning all of this evil that had come upon him. And when they got there and they saw Job, he looked so pitiful. He had these boils all over him. He had uh, put sackcloth and ashes on, and he had a potsherd that he was scraping himself with. And he was so miserable, they could see that his grief was so much that for seven days they just sat there with him and not a thing was said. Eventually, after the seven days, Job, in chapter 3, opened up his mouth and he began to curse the day that he was born. He got into bitterness and resentment, and of course, this was not good, what he said. We'll explain this later as we go on. He began to curse and to just let all of his bitterness that was within him out. And so Eliphaz is the first one of his three friends to speak up, and he starts in chapter 4 and begins to start reproving Job. And the rest of the book from chapter 3 all the way up through chapter 31 is just talking back and forth between Job and his three friends. Job's three friends all stuck together saying that it was because of Job's great sin that all of this came upon him. And Job was saying, no, it's not. That it was not because of his sin that this happened. And he was maintaining his integrity. And then we find in chapter 32 that Elihu, who we've already mentioned, he spoke 
and he spoke all the way from chapter 32 through chapter 37. And then God himself appeared in a whirlwind and spoke in front of Job and his three friends. And then in chapter 42, God rebuked Job's three friends. God told Job to pray for his three friends. And when Job prayed for them and offered a sacrifice for them unto God, then God turned Job's captivity. God began to bless Job again, and he gave him twice as much camels. And if you would compare the 42nd chapter with the first chapter as it lists the exact number of camels, the exact number of asses, oxen, and sheep that he had, you'd find that God gave him exactly twice as much uh, as all of those. And he gave him back a family, and his three daughters became the most beautiful daughters in all of the land. He lived 140 days, uh, 140 years after all of this took place during the book of Job. So that's a brief summary of what happened in the book of Job. Before we explain exactly what what is the real purpose of the book of Job? Where did his troubles come from? Uh, why did they come? Who was the one that uh, occasioned all of this? We first of all have to say what the book of Job does not teach because there's been so much teaching on this and I might say that a lot of it is is misuse of the book of Job. It is not properly explaining and using the book of Job the way that God intended for it to be used. These things have to be countered and uprooted because it's just like going out and planting seed in a field. If you throw good seed in a field, but if it's already got all of this other weeds and things in it, it'll choke that seed and it won't produce. You've got to cultivate that ground, and that's the way our hearts are. All of us have probably heard some type of teaching on the book of Job, and sad to say, a lot of it is not the proper interpretation of it. They, the book of Job has been used to teach many different things, and I'd say that a large percentage of it probably isn't right. One of those things that people have taught and is very typical teaching about the book of Job is that God is the one who came up with this temptation for Job, and God did it to purify him and actually as a blessing in disguise. The end result was that Job wound up with twice as much of everything, so they say that God actually is the author of all of these kind of things. Now, out of this arises a lot of teaching, and I've got an entire tape series, like on uh, a subject that covers the sovereignty of God, how much is God in control of what happens to us, the authority of the believer, about Christ redeemed us from the curse of the Old Testament law, a scripture that's misused in the New Testament a lot, Romans 8, 28. Uh, the title of that tape is All Things Work Together for Good. Paul's Thorn in the Flesh is another tape that we have that will deal with that subject. And uh, all of these things, there is an entire teaching that is developed that says that God actually uh, occasions, controls all of the influences, all of the things that happen in our life, even the tragedies, even the terrible things, that God does that to purify us, to mold us, to make us better. And it's actually a way of God expressing his love. Well, there's a lot of answers to that, and I really do refer you to these other tapes because I could teach for hours trying to establish that. I haven't got time to do that. I'm just going to have to leave it. But I will say that that is not what the book of Job teaches. Now, on the surface, somebody might get that, and I can see some ways. Uh, matter of fact, in the past, I've thought that exact same thing. In chapter 1, let's start reading with verse 6. It says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. 
Now, the New Testament counterpart to this scripture would be 1 Peter chapter 5, where the scripture says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil goeth about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And this is exactly what Satan was doing right here. He was walking up and down in the earth, seeking whom he may devour. He didn't say that clearly, but in the New Testament we have that revealed to him. That's his nature, and that's exactly what he was doing. So in verse 8, the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? Now, I heard some people take this verse right here and say that God actually is the one that occasioned all of this trouble that came upon Job. If God hadn't have brought this up to Satan, then Satan would have never have contended with him and would have never have pressed to have God reach out his hand and do something to Job. So actually, God bore the responsibility for causing all of this trouble with Job. Now that is not what this is saying. When God said, Hast thou considered my servant Job? In the margin of my Bible it will say, Hast thou set thy heart upon Job? And if you'll look this up in the Hebrew, that's exactly what this is saying. In other words, he's saying, Satan, have you focused your attention on? The dictionary says consider means to ponder, to study, to examine, to deliberate, or to focus your attention upon. Satan had set his heart upon Job. Now God did not make Satan set his heart on Job. All he did was bring this out into the open as Satan was there before God. God spoke to him and he said he knew what Satan was up to. He knew who Satan was after and God simply brought it out in the open and confronted it. God did not initiate it. Satan had already been going about in the earth and the Bible reveals to us in the New Testament the purpose of that is to seek whom he may devour. And he had set his heart upon Job. He had a plan to totally devastate Job. Now, I'm making this point because God is not the initiator of problems in our life. God does not design them. God does not approve of these things to bring good out of tragedy in our life. Had there not have been a devil, if Satan had not have come before God, if Satan had not have set his heart upon Job, God would not have done any of these things to Job. And that's evident because as you can see down here in the ninth and the tenth verse, it says, Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast not thou made a hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. Now, of course, this is Job saying, I mean, excuse me, this is Satan saying these things. You can't really take what Satan says as truth, but these facts that he spoke of right here are verified in the first part of that chapter where it says that God had blessed him. He was the greatest in substance of all of the men of the East. And God had blessed Job. Now, that shows us God's will towards Job. God was blessing Job on every hand. Everything that he was setting his hand unto was prospering. And there is no indication in the book of Job that God ever willed it to be anything else. It was Satan that came up with this plan. It was Satan that desired to have Job and to just totally ruin his life for the purpose of getting him to deny God. Now, this is really important that you understand this because if God was the one that initiated this whole thing, if it was God's plan and he simply drew Satan into a trap and got Satan to cooperate him and do what he wanted him to do, well, then that would cause a number of problems. One of them, that would make Satan God's messenger boy. 
And I've actually heard people use that terminology that everything that happens to us, even if it's the devil doing it, God had a purpose and God's the one that conceived it and willed it and he's just using Satan to carry out his scheme. Well, now that's not true and that's not what this said. God's will was to bless Job and his actions show that that is exactly what he's doing. So God did not design this to be a blessing or anything to Job. It wasn't. It was a curse. It was an affliction. It was persecution that came against Job. Satan hated Job because Satan could see that Job was a tremendous testimony for the Lord. People were under uh, his influence. He was influencing people for good, his godly life, and Satan hated it, and Satan came against it. Now, this is exactly what Mark chapter 4 says in the parable of the sower sowing the seed. And the second type of ground that that seed was sown in, it says that immediately afflictions and persecutions came for the word's sake. And what was the purpose of those afflictions and persecution coming? It was trying to hinder the word. It was trying to destroy that fruit, godly type of fruit in that person's life. That's the purpose of afflictions and persecution is to destroy the word, to destroy the work of God. That's the reason that Satan desired to do these things to Job was so that he could destroy Job, destroy his influence, and actually have Job turn on God and become a, a witness and a testimony for the devil. Now, what I'm saying through all of this is many people have taken the book of Job to say, well, God allows these things. God does these things to you because God really loves you, and it may be a real expression of love for God to kill your ten children, to take away all of your goods, your camels, your sheep, all of these things. God may be really doing it to bless you like he did Job. God did not do this to Job. God's will, had Satan not have come on the scene, God would have done nothing but prosper and bless Job. Satan was the author of all of these troubles that Job had. Satan was the one who initiated it. God was not the initiator. It was not his plan. It was not being used to further his plan. God did not desire it. He didn't want it. And that may raise another question about why did he allow it. And we'll deal with that in just a second. Another question is, or another thing that we need to expose is, some people would say that this was God's judgment upon sin. And uh, many times you'll hear this said, and they will use things like Job, and they'll say that God brings judgment upon sin. Well, now that is the truth, that God does judge sin. But not every trial or every problem that comes into our life is a direct result of sin. You might be able to say it's an indirect result of sin, because had we not have sinned, had we have never put ourselves in Satan's kingdom, then of course Satan would have no right or privilege against us. But not every trouble that comes into our life is a result of sin. Many times it is, but not every time. And this is exactly one of the mistakes that Job's three friends made as they begin to uh, talk to Job. As I said a while earlier, Job in chapter 3 began to curse the day that he was born and he just began to come out in bitterness and basically say, you know, why wasn't I killed before I was ever brought forth? This just isn't fair what's happening to me. In chapter 4, Eliphaz, the first friend of Job that spoke to him, he said this in, in verses 7 and 8. He said, Remember, I pray thee, whoever perished being innocent, or where were the righteous cut off? Even as I have seen, they that plow iniquity and sow wickedness reap the same. Now what he's saying is, he's, he heard Job crying out in bitterness, and he's saying, Job, what are you saying? He said, if you would just repent, 
then God would take all of this away from you. He's saying God did this to you because of your sin. And in a, in a nutshell, that's what Eliphaz, and that's what all of the three friends of Job were saying. And especially in this verse 8, he says, As I have seen, they that plow iniquity and sow wickedness reap the same. Now that's nearly a quotation of Galatians chapter 6, where it says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Now that is a Bible principle, and it is true that if a person lives in sin, that they are going to reap what they've sown. There will be a judgment upon sin. And I agree with that. That's true. But it's incorrect to say that that is the only reason that things come into our life. Now, a person who is not born again, there is a wage for their sin. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. And that death doesn't just mean physical or spiritual death, but it's everything that comes along with sin. For instance, sickness is a form of death. Depression, uh, financial problems, all of these kind of things. And so the wages of sin is death. Sin will reap a harvest. Exactly what Eliphaz was saying, also what uh, Galatians chapter 6. Sin will bring forth problems. Problems come as a direct result of sin. Many times God's judgment upon sin. A person who's not born again, that's, that's a true statement. A person who is born again, God's not going to punish them for their sins because he's already punished the Lord Jesus. But it is still true that a Christian who lives in sin will open up an, a door to Satan through that sin and Satan will come in and begin to steal, kill, and destroy from them because of that place that he gave them. So even in a Christian's life, you don't say that God is doing these things to you because he's mad at you and bringing judgment on you because of your sin. That would be incorrect, but you could say that these things have come upon you because of your sin. You've given place to Satan, and Satan is the one that's stealing, killing, and destroying. Now, those are true statements, but it's incorrect to say that that's the only reason that problems come into our life. And that's what happened with Job's three friends. What they were saying right here, this statement in Job chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, I'd say that 99% of all of us would have told Job the exact same thing. Job, it must be sin in your life. It's the reason that God did these things to you. See, they didn't have the benefit of knowing what we know in Job chapter 1 and chapter 2. They didn't know what had been going on in heaven. They didn't even have a concept of Satan. There is a very limited concept of Satan in the Old Testament. Matter of fact, the word Satan is only used, I believe, I'm doing this by memory, but I know I'm very close to being accurate, that it's only used 12 times in all of the Old Testament, and eight of them are right here in the book of Job. The four remaining references to Satan in the Old Testament, uh, two of them are the same instance, just simply one's reported in uh, Kings and one's reported in Chronicles. And so there actually would only be three other references to Satan outside of the book of Job. And so the book of Job gives us as much understanding about Satan by that name as any of the rest of the Old Testament. Now there are other references in the Old Testament to uh, people offering their sons and their daughters and sacrificing them unto devils. And there's terminology like devils. There's one time in uh, Isaiah chapter 14 that the word Lucifer is used. But even if you add all of these different references to Satan up, devils and all of these things, there still is less than 50 references to Satan in all of the Old Testament. You don't find that the people in the Old Testament had much of a concept or a doctrine of Satan. Now, there definitely was a devil during this time, and in the New Testament, Jesus cast many devils out. The people were well associated with devils, and the word uh, Beelzebub, 
Satan, devils, uh, the father of lies, and many other terminologies are used, and there is a, a definite doctrine of the devil in the New Testament. We see a revelation of it, but the Old Testament man didn't really have this. And so these three friends of Job didn't realize that there was an adversary that can just come against you and attack you. Instead, they thought that God designed this whole thing, and the only reason that they could see for it was that it was judgment upon Job for his great sin. And that's what they began to say. Job was maintaining the fact that, no, I am innocent. This has come upon me without cause. Now, I don't believe that Job was maintaining that he had never sinned. He said that over in chapter 9. And we'll make reference to that later. Job acknowledged that he wasn't sinless, but he was saying that there is nothing I have done that deserves this kind of, of judgment and punishment. And so he was maintaining his own integrity, and this just irritated his three friends, and they started saying, no, no, it's because of great sin in your life. Now, we've already used that one example of Eliphaz in chapter 4. If you turn to chapter 8, Verses 1 through 6. This is where, where Bildad, another friend of Job, was speaking. And he said in verse 1, Then answered Bildad the Shuhite and said, How long wilt thou speak these things? And how long shall the words of thy mouth be like a strong wind? Doth God pervert judgment? Or doth the Almighty pervert justice? If thy children have sinned against him, and he have cast them away for their transgression, if thou wouldest seek unto God betimes, and make thy supplication to the Almighty, if thou wert pure and upright, surely now he would awake for thee and make the habitation of thy righteousness prosperous. What he's saying is, if you weren't a great sinner, this wouldn't have happened to you. And again, that's basically the counsel that most of us would give somebody that's in adversity. I think, I think that a vast majority of the time that would be exactly true, but that is not the only reason, and that's one of the points that the book of Job makes. In verse 20, Bildad is continuing to speak, and he said, Behold, God will not cast away a perfect man, neither will he help the evildoers. By saying that, he's saying, Job, you are not a perfect man. Now, we know from chapter 1 and verse 1 that God, or the writer of the book of Job, Elihu, said that he was a perfect man. That doesn't mean that he was sinless, but it means that he was seeking after God with his whole heart. You'll find in the Bible terminology, there are many people called perfect uh, Paul even called himself perfect in Philippians chapter 3, but then he turned right around and he says, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do. He wasn't saying that he was sinless, but perfect simply means seeking God with all of your heart. And Job was that. He was a perfect man, or he was seeking God with his whole heart. Bildad was wrong in what he was saying. In chapter 11, verses 4 through 6, it says, For thou hast said, and this is so far speaking, another friend of Job, for thou hast said, My doctrine is pure, and I am clean in thine eyes. But oh, that God would speak, and open his lips against thee, and that he would show thee the secrets of wisdom, that they are double to that which is. Know therefore that God exacteth of thee less than thine iniquities deserve. In other words, he's saying, Job, you got no reason to complain, because God hasn't punished you near as much as what you really deserve. That was an incorrect statement. In chapter 22 verses 5 through 10. Eliphaz is speaking again, and he says, Is not thy wickedness great, and thine iniquities infinite? For thou hast taken a pledge from thy brother for naught, and stripped the naked of their clothing. Thou hast not given water to the weary to drink, and thou hast withholden bread from the hungry. But as for the mighty man, he had the earth, and the honorable man dwelt in it. 
Thou hast sent widows away empty, and the arms of the fatherless have been broken. Therefore snares are round about thee, and sudden fear troubleth thee. And so Eliphaz is saying, Job, you're a wicked man. You must have secretly been taking away judgment from widows. You haven't ministered to them. You've been oppressing the fatherless and all of these things. Now, even Job's three friends in the earlier part of talking to him admitted that he had been a shelter unto many, that he had blessed the fatherless and blessed the widows, and he had been a cheerful giver. They admitted that, but now they are so uh, irritated at him, they are so irate over him maintaining that he is without sin, that they are saying that you must have been doing these things secretly. Now, the answer to this is, again, Elihu... Are, actually, this is the uh, it is Elihu speaking, but it's still in the narration of the story. In chapter 32, in verse 3, he says, Also against his three friends was his wrath kindled, because they had found no answer, and yet had condemned Job. In other words, they had not been able to tell Job his sin. Job said this over and over, and he says, You tell me what my sin is. Show me where I'm wrong. Well, they couldn't come up with anything, but they said, you must have been guilty of this, but they had not caught him doing any sin. And the reason is because Job was a godly man. He was a perfect and an upright man, one that was seeking after God. They could not find a sin, or in other words, they could not find an answer to his question. They couldn't pinpoint any sin, and yet they said, it must be there, you must be guilty. You know that this has happened to me before. I've dealt with people... And they say, why has this situation come into my life, some negative situation? And I begin to tell them, and I know that I in the past, and I've been guilty of this, I've told people, well, you know, a lot of these things, sin just opens up a door to Satan. Satan comes in, and you've probably done some time of sin. You've been, maybe you've lived in adultery, or, you know, whether you specify a specific thing, you pre present this principle that sin is an inroad of Satan into your life. Now, that's a truth, and I will still tell people that. Like, I dealt with a woman not long ago who was living in adultery with a married man. She was unmarried. She had been married. She was divorced, but she was living in adultery with a married man. She was a Christian, and yet she was experiencing all kinds of problems, and she couldn't understand why. And I just began to tell her, I said, you're sin. You have yielded yourself unto Satan, and Satan, according to John 10.10, 10, comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy and so I told her, I said, that sin has given your, you have yielded yourself to Satan through that. Also in Romans chapter 6, verse 16, it says, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Now that scripture shows that whoever you obey, you yield yourself under his control. And I told this woman that. I said, Satan is dominating your emotions and all kinds of things because of sin. I said, get rid of it. Repent. Receive the cleansing of the Lord and get that inroad of Satan out of you. I said, turn from it. Now, I'm correct in saying that. That is correct. That is godly. But in the past, I've been exploring with people and talked to them, and they say, but I've been seeking God, and I've done all of these things. They may not have any specific thing that they've done that they're aware of. And I've come up and said, well, you must have been sinning some way. You must have missed it some way or Satan wouldn't have done this. And I believe that that's incorrect. And that's what Job's three friends did right here. It is true that sin is an inroad of Satan into your life. It is true that I'd say the vast majority of times, if you're sinning, then that's the reason that Satan's come against you. But it is possible for a person to be cleansed from their sin, especially under New Covenant days. We can walk in the mercy of God. If we are walking in the light that we have, according to 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7, 
If we are walking in the light that we have, then we have fellowship with the Father, and the blood of His Son cleanses us from all sins. We are cleansed from sin, even though we are have not... Uh, always lived without sin. We have committed sin. God has dealt with them, has cleansed us of them, and has removed them as far as the east is from the west. If a person is walking with their sins dealt with, they are tender before God, they've confessed it, repented of it, forsaken it, they're standing before God clean, then it's very possible that problems can still come into their life not because of sin, directly, but rather because they are in this earth and they are in an alien land and we have an adversary and he's just going about attacking whoever he can. Now he can attack a person that has not submitted unto him through sin. doesn't mean that he can win, but you can be attacked. Paul was attacked and Paul had terrible things happen to him. Paul had this thorn in the flesh, which I'm not going to get off on and teach on. Again, I say that I have a tape that explains what that is. But that thorn in the flesh wasn't sickness or something like that, and yet it was an attack of the devil. That's what it says, a messenger of Satan sent to buffet me. And God did not redeem him from Satan attacking him, but he gave him the ability to overcome. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. And Paul became a total overcomer in that situation. You can't be redeemed from Satan attacking you, but you can win in every one of those situations. As it says in 2 Timothy 3.12, it says, All those who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Persecution is an attack of the enemy, and it doesn't come because you've been sinning. Many Matter of fact, persecution comes to the people who've been living right and walking with God. It's an attack of the devil upon you. Again, I qualify all of these things by saying, Yes, sin is an inroad of Satan into our life. Yes, what a life has... Bildad and Sofar were saying were true much of the time, but in this case they were wrong because this did not come upon Job for his sin. Now you can see that here in Job chapter 2 and verse 3. This is the second time that Satan appeared before God in heaven, and God said unto Satan in verse 3, Hast thou considered, my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? And still he holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause. Now God said it was without cause, and that should settle the issue right there. It was without cause. It was not because of Job's sin. Let me also add one other thing to this. Uh, a new slant on the book of Job that I've heard teach is out of chapter 3 and verse 25. And it says there, For the thing which I greatly feared is come upon me. And this is Job speaking. And people go back to how Job was offering sacrifices for his sons and his daughters and that he was continually fearful that something was going to happen that would break the string of blessings of God in his life. And so from that they teach that fear activates the power of Satan in the same way that faith activates the power of God. And therefore, Satan, uh, Job was operating in fear, and Satan came upon him and destroyed him through this fear. When I do believe that fear is an inroad of Satan into our life. It says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And so it shows that that fear is directly from the devil. I agree with the principle, but again, I say that that is not what the problem was with Job. Because God said that it was without cause. Now, Job did say that he had fear, but there are different types of fear. 
And matter of fact, in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 1, we are even told to fear lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of us should seem to come short of it. Now that's in the new covenant. And he's, he's admonishing us to have fear, a godly type of fear. It's nothing wrong with fearing that you ever turn against God. There is a godly type of fear, but then there is a terror, a dread that is totally tormenting, as it talks about in 1 John chapter 4. Anyway, I haven't got time to teach on that, but apparently Job was not operating in this devilish type of fear because God said that these things that happened were without cause. Or another explanation could be that Job was before the law was given, and according to Romans chapter 5, verses 12 and 13, there was a period of time where God did not impute man's sins unto them. And so God simply may not have held this fear against him if it was the negative, devilish type of fear. But regardless, God did not, this did not come upon Job because of a direct sin that he had committed. And that is made clear in the book of Job, especially this one reference where God said that it was without cause that these things came upon him. And so that's one thing that needs to be laid to rest is that this did not come as a punishment of sin. One of the direct applications of the book of Job to our life is to let us know that tragedy does not always come upon great sinners. Now you'll find people believe this many, many times. For instance, when... Paul was escaped on the island of Miletus, and uh, they escaped from the shipwreck. They were all cold and wet, and they began to gather sticks and make a fire to warm themselves. Paul gathered some sticks. He threw them on the fire, and as he did, this serpent came out of the fire and bit him on the hand. And when the pagan people there saw what had happened, they said, no doubt, in other words, there is no doubt about this, for sure, this man must be a murderer or some great sinner, and God is bringing judgment upon him for what he did. That's the exact reasoning, the exact uh, theology that Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and so far, were sharing with Job. But, of course, that was not true with uh, Paul. That did not happen to him because of some great sin in his life. If he would have just been praying more or doing this or that, that he wouldn't have been preserved from it. That was just nothing but Satan attacking him. But Paul knew how to stand on the Word of God in the Scriptures in Mark 16, 17, where it talks about that they shall take up serpents and it shall not harm them. Paul released his faith, and those same pagan people that said this must be God's judgment on him because of great sin, when they saw that he didn't die, turned around and began to cry out and say, oh, this must be a great man of God. He must be the great power of God. I tell you, people's theology can switch in a hurry. But this is an incorrect notion to say that tragedy comes in a person's life because of great sin. Now, that is true that that is one reason, and I would venture to say that that is the vast majority of the time the reason that tragedy comes in people's life is because they have given themselves over to Satan through sin. But even a godly person can have tragedy come in their life as is illustrated in the book of Job, not because of any direct sin that they did. And so we've established those two things, and I believe that that's very important to do. So why did this really come upon Job? Well, let's go back to Job chapter 1. Again, God simply brought up the subject of Job, but it wasn't God who initiated it. He knew that Satan had already set his heart upon Job. And so Satan began to say in Job 1.9, he said, Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? 
Hast not thou made a hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? Hast thou blessed the work of his hands and his substance is increased in the land? But put forth thine hand now and touch all that he hath and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thy hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. Now this shows that Satan was the instigator of this whole thing. Satan was desiring to have Job that he might sift him as wheat. Now that's the terminology that was used in the New Testament when Satan tried to do the same thing to Simon Peter. In Luke chapter 22 and verse 31, the Lord said, Jesus said to Simon, he said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. And so this is the same thing that was happening in the book of Job. Satan was desiring to have Job so that he could sift him his wheat, so that he could come and just literally destroy his life and make a bad testimony that he figured would have uh, drawn people away from God. Now that's what we see taking place in Job chapter 1. And the reason that God allowed Satan to do this is because in the New Testament, when he tried it with Simon Peter, Jesus prayed for him. In other words, Jesus became an intercessor or a savior to Simon Peter. But in the book of Job, there was no savior yet. Jesus had not yet come upon the scene. And there was no recourse for God. God's will was to bless Job. That's what he had been doing, and that's what he would have continued to do had Satan not have contended over Job. But when, when Satan just set his heart upon Job, God allowed Satan to come against Job and to do these things, not because it was God's will, not because he desired it, not because it was judgment upon sin, and not because he was going to bless Job with it. But he did it simply because he had no real recourse. Now, some people, that might really upset, but you've got to understand that before Jesus came on the scene, before he became a man and dwelt among us, there was no Savior. Or as Job put it in chapter 9, there was no days man or umpire between God and man. And God wasn't blessing Job because of justice. God wasn't giving Job what he deserved. Now, Job may have been a perfect man. Again, not sinless, but he may have been a godly man, a man seeking after God with his whole heart. But he wasn't good enough that he earned these blessings from God. No, this wasn't something that Job had earned. This was not a just payment for Job, but rather... It was mercy extended towards Job by God. God was loving Job and blessing him out of mercy and grace, not out of justice. And when Satan came saying, look, you know, I want Job because God was just and because the intercessor, the Savior, had not yet come and made an atonement that purged Job from his sin, there really was no option for God. Satan or excuse me, Job was in Satan's kingdom. And Satan had legal rights to come at Job and to fight against him. Job was an Old Testament man that had not been born again. And as it says over in Colossians chapter 1, over there speaking of the new covenant and the born-again Christian, his rights and privileges with God, in Job chapter 1, or excuse me, in Colossians chapter 1, it says that he has delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. Now, you can't be translated 
uh, into the kingdom of God's dear Son until you've been delivered from the power of darkness. And this is talking about before we got born again, we were held in the power of darkness, and then we were translated into the kingdom of God's dear Son. That means that before you were born again, which Job was not a born-again man, Job was an Old Testament man, the Savior had not yet come, there wasn't even the Mosaic law that gave him that ceremonial cleansing and this revelation of God. He didn't even have that. He was before the days of Moses. He predated all of that. And so Job was in the power of darkness. If you believe Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13, you've got to believe that Job was in the power of the darkness. In other words, he was under the control of the devil. He was in the kingdom of the devil. And God was not blessing Job out of justice, but rather out of mercy. And when Satan saw it and came along and wanted to contest the thing, God did not legally have the right to demand that Job continue to be blessed. Job was an Old Testament man that even though he was a godly man, he had sinned. He was in the kingdom of the devil, not directly because of individual sins, but just this sin nature. He was born into that kingdom. He was under Satan's dominion, and Satan had legal rights at him. I had a man present this to me, and I'll just pass it on to you. This makes very good sense to me, and I don't know for sure that this is true. But it's very possible that when God said in verse 12 to Satan, he said, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. That word, behold, there, the way that it's used. In other words, it could be like God saying, Look, Satan, he's already in your power. Now, this could be that... Satan didn't really realize what he had gained through the fall of man. Now, I know some people think, well, now, now, wait a minute. Satan, of course, knew what he got. I think many times we give Satan too much credit. We think he knows everything. We think he never makes mistakes and on and on. I tell you, anybody who chose to fight against God is not real smart. Now, I don't believe that he's dumb in the sense that he doesn't have knowledge. I mean, he's... he's uh, a whiz at deceiving people. He, of course, can think and, and conceive all of these different ways, but I mean, really, there's bound to be some some gear loose someplace for Satan to fight against God. And I just don't believe that he's got all of the smart and the perception that we credit him with having. He has a natural wisdom, but he doesn't have spiritual wisdom. And we can see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 where it talks about had the princes of this world known the wisdom of God, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory. Jesus prophesied at least four times that he was going to be uh, killed, that he would die, and be resurrected the third day. If Satan was as smart as he claims to be, he never would have crucified Jesus, because that's what really did him in. Satan is a dummy, and Satan misses some things. Now, he's, he's wise in the way that man look at it. If you're fighting him in your own natural ability, you're in for trouble. But if you have the wisdom of God, there is no comparison between the wisdom that we have and the wisdom that the devil has. And it's very possible that Satan was saying, you have a hedge about him. God didn't say that he had a hedge about Job, but Satan may have perceived it as being that way. Satan may have seen God's blessings on every hand, and Satan may not have been aware of what he had. Regardless of whether that is exactly the way it happened, I do believe that the reason God allowed this is because he had to allow it. There was no option. He had not yet redeemed mankind out of the power of the darkness. He was, had not yet translated us into his kingdom. So we were in, Job was in Satan's kingdom, and Satan had legal rights to Job. And so when it came to a confrontation between God and Satan, 
God simply had to allow it. He had to allow Satan to go forth and attack Job, not because of any direct sin that he had done, but just simply because he had not yet become a redeemed, born-again man. He was still under the power of darkness. He was still in the kingdom of Satan, and therefore Satan had rights and privileges to him. Somebody might say, well, if that's so, then how could God put any kind of limitations and say only touch his uh, material things, but don't put your hand upon him? Well, again, I just believe that we give Satan too much credit. I believe Satan thought that's all that he needed access to. I thought, I think that Satan was just saying, man, I know if I can come and touch his children and touch his camels and his asses, his oxen, his um, sheep, then that'll do it. Job will turn against God. I just don't believe that Satan, desired, he didn't press it because he thought that he had enough. He thought that, man, this is, this is sufficient. But after Job maintained his integrity and did not curse God and turn against him, well, then Satan came back again and saying, let me add his physical body. Let me have him because this time I'll get him to curse God. And, of course, he tried, and Job did not curse God. Now, what Job did do was he never cursed God and denied his faith. Even in the midst of his uh, criticism, he got very upset he began to uh, argue with God that it was not just the way that things had happened and all of this, but he still maintained his faith in the Lord. In, verse, uh, in chapter 19, in verse 25, Job said this, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. Job never did deny God or quit serving God. And this statement right here in chapter 19 shows that he still had his faith in God that there would be a Redeemer and that he would stand with the Redeemer and he would have a resurrected body. And that's a tremendous statement of faith and it shows that Job did not deny God. But what Job did do, he was so convinced that he had not occasioned this tragedy by his sin that he started maintaining his integrity and actually got into a place where he was saying God was unjust in doing this to him. So again, referring back to Elihu as being one of the keys to this book in chapter 32, he summed it up this way in the second verse by saying that, speaking of Job, that he justified himself rather than God. In other words, Job actually made it look like he was more just, he was more upright, he was actually... Uh, more godly than God himself was. He was saying, God, I'm innocent. This came without cause, and you have perverted my judgment and taken it away. Now, that's what God rebuked him for. He was right in the sense that it, this did not happen to him because of his sin. It happened simply because Satan was the king over the kingdom that Job lived in. And Satan desired to have Job. There had not yet been made the provision so to redeem him from the power of the darkness, and so Satan had him. But it wasn't because of his great sin that this came upon him. Job knew that, but he got to saying, God, you took away my judgment. See, Job didn't know that Satan was the one that did this, and he didn't understand that God had no recourse because uh, Satan was the legal owner or the legal king over Job. He didn't understand that. And so he got to thinking, he didn't know that Satan was involved in this in any way at all. He didn't have the benefit of reading Job chapter 1 and 2. And so he got to thinking that this was just something that God did and that God desired to do it 
and that it was unjust because he knew that he hadn't wickedly departed from God. Now, here's some of the things that Job said, and I'd just like to take some of his sayings and go through here to show you what Job was thinking. In Job chapter 6, verse 24, Job said, Teach me, and I will hold my tongue, and cause me to understand wherein I have erred. In other words, he's saying, I'm sinless. You just show me where a sin is in my life. Also in verses 29 and 30 of this same chapter, he said, Return, I pray you, let it not be iniquity. Yea, return again, my righteousness is in it. Is there iniquity in my tongue? Cannot my taste discern perverse things? In other words, he's saying, look, don't you think I'd know if there was real sin in me? Don't you think I could taste or discern sin in me? Also, in chapter 9 and verse 17, Job said, For he breaketh me with a tempest and multiplieth my wounds without cause. And here's Job saying that it was without cause that this happened to him. In chapter 10 and verse 2, Job said, I will say unto God, Do not condemn me. Show me wherefore thou contendest with me. And now Job is beginning to say some things, and this will show you really some of the mistakes that he made as he was addressing God. In verse 3 he says, Is it good to thee that thou shouldest suppress, that thou shouldest despise the work of thine hands, and shine upon the counsel of the wicked? Hast thou eyes of flesh, or seest thou as man seest? Are thy days as the days of man? Are thy years as man's days, that thou inquirest after mine iniquity, and searcheth after my sin? Thou knowest that I am not wicked, and there there is none that can deliver out of thine hand. See, Job again is maintaining his own righteousness. And he's saying, in a sense, he says, What kind of God are you that's hunting me out, that's doing these things to you? He says, Do you delight in oppression? Well, now those are bold statements, but that's exactly what Job is saying. Drop on down to the 20th verse of chapter 10. And Job said here, he said, Are not my days few? Cease then, and let me alone, that I may take comfort a little. I mean, this shows the bitterness that was in Job's heart. He was saying, Leave me alone. In other words, just get away from me. He says, I can't stand this. That's a bold statement. He was bitter towards God, feeling that God had done all of these things unjustly to him. In chapter 13, Job chapter 13 and verse 15, he says, Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him, but I will maintain mine own ways before him. In other words, he's talking about I will maintain that I have still walked without sin before him. Drop on down to verse 23 of this same chapter, Job 13, 23. He says, How many are mine iniquities and sins? Make me to know my transgression and my sin. Now this is Job speaking to God, and he's saying, again, that I'm, I'm without sin in this matter. It's not my sin that occasioned this. And he's complaining to God. Look in chapter 16 and verse 11. Job said, God hath delivered me to the ungodly and turned me over into the hands of the wicked. I was at ease, but he hath broken me asunder. He hath also taken me by the neck and shaken me to pieces and set me up for his mark. His archers compass me round about. He cleaveth my reins asunder and doth not spare. He poureth out my gall upon the ground. He breaketh me with breach upon breach. He runneth upon me like a giant. I have sewed sackcloth upon my skin and defiled my horn in the dust. My face is foul with weeping and on my eyelids is the shadow of death. Not for any injustice in mine hands. Also, my prayer is pure. Again, Job maintaining his own integrity. But the problem was he didn't fight for God's integrity. He began to say, God, I'm just, but I don't think you are. 
over in Job chapter 19 and verses 4 through 6. It sa- this is Job again speaking, and he says, And be it indeed that I have erred, mine error remaineth with myself. If indeed ye will magnify yourselves against me and plead against me my reproach, know now that God hath overturned me, overthrown me, and hath compassed me with his net. And dropping on down to uh, chapter 21 and verse 7, Job 21, 7. He says, Wherefore do the wicked live, become old, yea, or mighty in power? And he goes all the way down through verse 20, and what he's beginning to do is to start saying the wicked aren't suffering punishment. He says, It's really to no advantage that I've served God all of this time. Now, that's a terrible thing to say. Uh, In verses 19 and 20, he says, God layeth up his iniquity for his children. He rewardeth him, and he shall know it. His eyes shall see his destruction, and he shall drink of the wrath of the Almighty. And so he's actually saying that there's no real advantage to serving God because the wicked aren't suffering the way that I am. In chapter 23, in verse 11, Job continues to say, My foot hath held his steps, his ways have I kept and not declined. Neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. In chapter 24, and verse 21, Job said this, He hath evil entreated the barren that beareth not, and doeth not good to the widow. Now, you know, this is amazing, because what actually happened was, Job had been accused by his friends as being his great sin that brought this thing upon him. And he said, no, it is not my sin. Now, he was right in that. But then Job's three friends, because of his maintaining his own integrity, his friends began to say, you are unjust, you are unrighteous. And you remember we read where they sat there and said, you have perverted the judgment of the widows. You haven't taken care of the fatherless and all of these things. That was untrue about Job. But Job, because of his anguish that he was in, he began to accuse God of the exact same unjust things that he had been accused of. Right here he's saying, He hath evil entreated the barren that beareth not, and doeth not good to the widow. That's not true. But that was Job's perspective. He was thinking God had done these things to him instead of Satan. He was thinking that God had just done it because he desired to do it without any reason. And uh, he was thinking that God was not just. He did not operate justly. In verse 22, he goes on to say, He draweth also the mighty with his power. He riseth up, and no man is sure of his life. Though it be given him to be in safety, wherein he resteth, yet his eyes are upon their ways. They are exalted for a little while, but are gone and brought low. In chapter 27, in verse 2, Job said this, As God liveth, who hath taken away my judgment, and the Almighty, who hath vexed my soul. And then in verse 5, he goes on to say, God forbid that I should justify you. Till I die, I will not remove mine integrity from me. My righteousness I hold fast and will not let it go. My heart shall not reproach me so long as I live. Job maintained his righteousness and his integrity, but he did not fight and defend God's righteousness and God's integrity. And that's why the wrath of God was kindled against him. Also, again, I refer to Job 32, verse 2, where Elihu's wrath was kindled against him because he justified himself rather than God. Look over where Elihu spoke in chapter 35, Job chapter 35. In verse 2, he said, Thinkest thou this to be right, that thou sayest, My righteousness is more than God's? For thou sayest, What advantage will it be unto thee? And what profit shall I have if I be cleansed from my sin? In other words, he's simply saying 
that Job was maintaining his righteousness, but he hadn't maintained God's integrity. He was saying, well, I, I know I'm right, but God must be wrong. God did this wrong. It is not fair that God did this to me. My righteousness is more than God's righteousness, is what he's saying. And you know, there are people that still do the same thing today. There's people that may know in their heart that it is not their great wickedness that a tragedy has come into their life, but they have no concept of Satan. And there's no reason for us not to because God has given us a revelation of Satan and shown us that he's our adversary. In John 10.10, it's the thief that comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But Jesus said, I am come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. God gave us a revelation of Satan. We know that it's Satan that goes about destroying people's lives. In Acts 10.38, Jesus went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil. Not oppressed of God, but they were oppressed of the devil. We have a revelation of God. And instead of us saying, well, I know it's not because of my sin, therefore God must be wrong. And instead of getting bitter and resentful towards God, we need to recognize that if tragedy has come in our life, it's because Satan is the one who has desired to have us. As a New Testament believer, we have been delivered from the kingdom of Satan and put in the kingdom of God. We are delivered from the power of darkness. And so it's not, in our sense, God allowing it. God had to allow Satan to come at Job because he had no option. But in the New Testament, God has already destroyed, defeated Satan. We have been given power over Satan. And so now, if Satan is coming into the life of a believer, it's not God who's allowing it but rather it's us who allows it. It's us that allows Satan to steal from us what is rightfully ours. We are not taking the authority that God has given us and used it. One of the reasons is because we haven't been clear. Many people are deceived thinking, well, God did this, just like God did it to Job. God did not do it to Job in the sense that God desired it. He didn't design it. He didn't initiate it. It was totally an initiation of Satan. Satan desired to have Job that he might sift him as wheat, and God had to allow it because there was not yet the redemption made. The redemption, Jesus, has been sacrificed for us, and today, if Satan is overhauling us and putting tragedy in our life, we need to recognize that it's possible it's because of direct sin that we've given Satan an inroad into our life through sin. Uh, out of Romans 6.16. It's also possible that it's like Paul, where that viper came out of the fire and, and fastened on his arm. It wasn't because he was a great sinner. It was just because he was in the world that Satan is the god of this world, and we are going to confront Satan. But the lesson to learn is that Satan is the one that devises afflictions and persecutions to steal away the word. God has given his word to us to perfect us for reproof, for correction, as it says in 2 Timothy 3.16. God is not the author of our problems, nor of Job's. And praise God, I believe that that'll set you free. We hope that your heart has been quickened by hearing the Word of God through this message. Remember, Andrew Womack Ministries operates a helpline that you can call for prayer and information at 719-635-1111. We have a ministry website at www.awmi.net and you can write the ministry at P.O. Box 3333, Colorado Springs, 80934. Until next time, we pray that you will reach out by faith and receive everything that is yours through God's grace.